the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a, is a, a brilliant example of a failed use of air power. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace. I'm J.J. Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian, and joining us today is retired Lieutenant General Gus Guastella, a former AFSENT commander who also served as the Air Force's Director of Operations, uh, who is going to help us discuss the Ukraine air war, warfighting culture, and more. He's also a senior fellow at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, one of the world's finest organizations for studying air power. And we parse the week's headlines in global air power. And it's all made possible by GE Aerospace, from America's first jet engine to the revolutionary three-stream adaptive cycle engine. GE Aerospace has been delivering firsts for military propulsion for more than 100 years. Learn more about its latest innovations at geaerospace.com slash XA100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And of course, GE Aerospace sponsors our air warfare coverage. And check out our other weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company. They clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security and hosted by the next voice you hear, Mr. Vago Maradian. Thanks very much, JJ. Uh, And JJ, as you do every week, uh, start us off on the news of the week on a segment that basically is uh, all wings considered. (laughs) This week in air power, President Biden's decision not to send F-16s to Ukraine and why that may be a blessing in disguise for Kyiv. The commander of Air Mobility Command makes the case for stepping up his command's warfighting culture. Oh, and do drones have mothers? He also proposes using KC-135s as drone motherships. In other uninhabited vehicle news, the Marines, yes, the United States Marine Corps, are buying Kratos Valkyries for experimentation. Northrop Grumman let the world know that they're not going to be making much, if any, money on the initial lots of the B-21. This was discussed, Vago, on the Sunday Business Report at some length, and I recommend that folks go find that on their podcast app. In an astounding series of coincidences, Not long after the Secretary of the Air Force publicly speculated it was time to start some new transport programs, Boeing unveiled a blended wing body design coming out of their X-plane work with NASA for a future stealthy tanker transport. And then the Air Force put out a request for information for the new KCX stealthy tanker to be introduced in 2040. I've got the RFI in front of me, and there's an interesting technical qualification. Anyone who submits has to do so in 12-point times New Roman. (laughs) Also in tanking, the Air Force ordered a ninth lot of Boeing KC-46s, adding 15 to the 68 delivered so far on the road to 179. That's a vote of confidence in what's been a rocky program. And someone's been in the skies over Iran with things blowing up on the ground. Earlier this week, Vago had a conversation with Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses on that, but there's probably more to say. Vago, where do we start? Uh, thanks uh, very much, AJ, for that uh, recap. And I, I want to uh, start uh, uh, with uh, General uh, Guastella. He knows the skies uh, over Europe, uh, as well as Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, from the cockpit of a Viper, as well as uh, from uh, A-10s. Uh, your last job in the Air Force was uh, as the Director of uh, Operations. Um, there's been a lot of uh, discussion 
uh, about uh, the F-16 and whether it should go to Ukraine. And we're all F-16 lovers here uh, on this program. Um, but the question is whether or not the Viper is the right jet for Ukrainians. For starters, Ukrainian runways are very rough and rugged, uh, and the F-16 is a jet that needs very experienced technical folks to keep uh, flying. Another concern is the Ukrainians could use uh, these uh, jets to strike Russia, although so far, to their credit, uh, any strikes in Russia have not been done with Western weapons, but their own capabilities. Um, I was talking to a good friend who basically said, look, uh, Gripen by Sweden's Saab, or the Mirage by Francis Dassault are better choices. These are much better suited for uh, austere conditions. And in fact, were designed to be operated by conscripts. What's your sense on the right kind of air power that Ukraine needs? Probably actually the easiest solution is to ship former uh, Soviet jets over there. But what's your sense on the right way to scratch this itch? No, this is a really good question. And, and uh, I agree with you said up front, the F-16 is a phenomenal airplane. I'm, maybe I'm a little biased, but it is a phenomenal airplane. But it's also, it takes a phenomenal team to maintain it and uh, and execute at the level that, that the you know American public and, and the, our allies have been used to with the F-16. And so, uh, so everything you mentioned from Certainly, the F-16 is rugged enough to handle, you know, you know, because we're going to fly, we're going to fly the F-16s off of runways that have been hit and repaired in the U.S. and in, in our bases, because that's that's part of our what we call ability to survive and operate. Although, indeed, it doesn't have the landing gear of a of a carrier-based aircraft, but it is, it can handle it. Now, the other things that you talked about, I think, are are probably more pressing, and that is the te the technical expertise to maintain it. Uh, and, and also to fly it. I mean, you know, you can't just go from a Russian MiG-29 and jump into an F-16 cockpit and expect to be combat effective. You know, it, it's going to take a lot of learning for the pilots. But on the on the on the maintenance side, on the technical side, there's a tr there needs to be a tremendous learning curve. And um, and here's one thing that, that probably underpins all almost all of it, and that is, it's not just that pilot that goes to combat. It's the maintainers. And so if you're going to have something like this, are you going to be relying on contractors, which is something we do in the Middle East historically for years? We have contractors that will fix airplanes, get them airborne, but they live within the sanctuary of an airbase that's not getting hit. But think about what happened in Ukraine. Everybody is a combatant. If they see us generating air power out of a base, they're going to come after it. And so if, if our technicians are contracted, U.S. folks that are used to be F-16 maintainers, and now they're working on it over there for, for money, are they going to be able to do the job under fire? Are they going to be willing to? So a lot of those things come into play. One of the factors that helps drive what the right force is to present is who we're fighting. For decades, the Russians have had an air doctrine that says their air power is long-range artillery in support of the army. In Syria, they threw in all of their latest top equipment because none of it had seen combat before. They had a generation of commanders that hadn't seen combat before, and they had to learn techniques, tactics, and procedures on how to operate. You were an instructor at Fighter Weapons School. You've spent time in Europe. As you look across at the Russians, have we seen anything that they're doing now that changes the way the U.S. has to prepare to fight them in the air? I think the the Russians are uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a is a, a brilliant example of a failed use of air power. They, I mean, they didn't do anything that we would have done doctrinally, uh, and and it shows. And they've paid a tremendous price in terms of what they lost for, for vehicles and personnel on the ground because 
of their embarrassing execution of air power. I don't know whether it's lack of training. I don't know whether it's the systems issues themselves, uh, and it's, it's certainly doctrine, or it's a combination of all of them. But back to your, you, you put a really good point. Like, what is the purpose of the Ukrainian air power? Is it to defend Ukrainian airspace, to engage Russian cruise missiles, if you will, uh, defend Russian forces in a close air support role? Or is it to go across the border? And that's something that, uh, that we're all concerned with, is what would you do with the, with the capabilities? The F-16 can certainly do all of it. And so a lot of those things factor into the decision of what airplane to give them and, uh, and then how, would, how are they were going to use it. You're uh, also uh, an A-10 guy, I should point out. You've got experience in the airframe as well. And there's a lot of discussion about whether the A-10 is the right answer here. But um, last week, uh, Dr. Jack Watling of the Royal United Services Institute uh, and their team was in Washington, D.C. And Jack made an interesting point, and I should point out he was one of our strategy guests a couple of weeks ago uh, talking about ground uh, lessons. Uh, One of the points he made was that the Russians are really starting to get their air defense game sharpened, uh, that a Ukrainian yeah. jet flying at something like 50 feet was shot down at like 112 kilometers. Uh, so he's, you know, his point was whatever is, is flying, right? I mean, there's a lot of debate about whether gray eagles uh, and we should be sending them over there. And I think there's a lot of merits to that as well. Um, what are the Russians doing in being able to deny airspace, right? That, that the nature of this conflict is what it is because neither the Russians nor the Ukrainians are able to capitalize on their air power. What's, what's the way for us to be thinking through this? Because the Russians are unfortunately an adaptive adversary and they're you know, five times the size of Ukraine. Uh, you're absolutely right. Russia has invested heavily in effective surface-to-air systems. And um, they did, they did, we saw that in Syria where they brought in the S 400 system, I think, into Syria. They've, 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 they've exported various versions of it. And it's a pretty, pretty darn capable system. Like you said, it can hit you at low, down low at a long way. And that's one of the issues with any application of air power in Ukraine is that if you're going to fly up into the Russian defenses, uh, what, are you going to be survivable? And, and, and so it gets back into how air power is being used. I think it's important that the Ukrainians, you know, think, okay, is this, is this F-16 going to be there to, to do cap and protect like defensive control of the air where they're protecting Kiev from cruise missiles, or is this going to be up in those, those Russian defendable areas with that's very vulnerable. And I'll tell you whether you're in the F-16 or the A-10 or a Gripen or anything else or a Mirage, you're going to be vulnerable against those high end Russian systems. And that's just a fact that they're going to have to live with. Uh, hence, hence our uh, considerable investment in, in fifth and sixth generation stealth at this point. Exactly. Exactly. They, it, we have, an, we have a, an overmatch against the Russians in terms of our survivability of our aircraft by our fifth and, and sixth, hopefully sixth gen aircraft someday. They can't match us in there. So what they've decided to do is really invest in surface to air to try to try to make an at least attempt to keep us out of their airspace. We sat with Secretary of the Air Force Frank Kendall last week, and he had some very strong things to say about restoring the warfighting culture to the service. The idea that the previous wars in Iraq and Afghanistan weren't the kind where you were likely to have to operate while having massive losses of units, of comrades, of bases, getting people back into the mindset that says we might have to fight a war in the midst of losses and a real challenge. 
How is the force doing with that idea, with that message? How far do we have to go to getting back to the notion of a near-peer conflict? And what do commanders have to do to translate that vision into reality? Yeah, well, for starters, I completely agree with Secretary Kendall uh, that it has to be a mindset shift. Uh, and, and the same thing with the the, the the recent letter from General Minahan that I know you guys may want to talk about as well, that, that talked about that focus on the high, high-end fight and the culture shift. But here's the thing. Airmen can do whatever is asked of them, but they have to be given the resources and the time to do so. So a, can, a commander can come in and say, hey, I want everyone to focus on the high-end fight. And the airmen, the, the, the heads are going to nod. They're going to go up and down. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. But then you have to turn around and say, what tools are we giving them to actually do it? There's the problem, okay? And like you, like you mentioned up front, we've been, been embroiled in 20-plus years of land-centric campaigns where we have air supremacy. Air power is not really taxed. It's not threatened. It's, 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 we have it. And now we have to shift to where we won't have it. We have to fight to get it. So in order to do so, we need not only a cultural shift, which is, I would say, certainly something is difficult to work on, but that's commander's business. But the hardest part is the resources to do it. And the, and the two areas that jump out at me, first and foremost, are number one, the time to be able to do it. Because what we've had for the last 20 years is a tremendous tax on the Air Force because Guess what? You need, I don't care if you have one boot on the ground in Afghanistan or a hundred thousand, you need air power. You need air power to fly logistics. You need air power to do ISR. You need, you need air force all over the world. And we've been out there doing it. So that's consumed a lot of the force to the point where there's not a lot of time back home to train at those levels that we need to get after the high end fight. So that culture only can happen if they're given the training. And then the second piece that's been missing is the tools and some of the you know we we have some crown jewels for high-end training in the inventory one of them is like the the nellis range complex and the red flags and the weapon schools and things of that nature but they're small they're not enough and they're also don't necessarily have all the the tools they need in terms of the 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 replication of the threats that they're going to face so we need i guess my to sum it up we need the, the airmen need the time to train which means we have to think, rethink what we're doing globally in terms of how employed the force is. And then we also need the, the resources to get after the high-end fight, the simulators, the ranges, and the scenarios and the equipment that actually duplicates the high-end fight. With that, you can really get after the culture shift. I have a, a follow-up. Um, I, I want to ask a, a question about um, what General Minahan was trying to say, because I think that folks got uh, distracted uh, a little bit you know, some very thoughtful people have been saying we are in a, a time of extreme vulnerability. There, he's not the first one to say 2025 could be in that you know maximum danger window. Uh, and what he was saying was again the importance of tanker and transport people getting out of an older mindset more to a you're going to be on the contact front end at the forward uh, in the in the Asia Pacific. Indeed, the biggest bomb we ever deployed came off of a C-130. So ultimately, there's going to be a very, very big and very different role, even for the transport force in terms of rotary weapons launchers and the like. I want to get to, you know, how do commanders have to get this right in terms of message? But first, I want to ask you, we've heard so much from uh, the chief. Uh, General Goldfein was talking about this. Cobra Harigan was talking about it in Europe. 
CQ Brown, when he was in PACAF, was working um, the issues. Hawk Carlisle was in terms of stepping up that sort of warfighting focus. Cruiser is focused on that as well now. How's the service doing, sir, in you know making that culture change, driving it, and getting the minds of airmen into that high-intensity mindset it had throughout the Cold War? Well, I think there's a, a definite realization that the shift is is happening, and you know, airmen need the communication from the commanders. You know, what what's the thing that it, people need? Not, not necessarily told what, but told the why is important. And and letters like from the one from General Minahan, when you have commanders' calls and you explain the imperative of the high end and how that what we've done in the past where air bases are sanctuaries, where the skies above countries that we're flying in are uncontested. That is not the future. And, and you get them thinking, okay, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be, they're gonna be pursuing me out here. They're gonna be attacking me on the ground. What am I gonna do to ensure I can still get this mission done? And, and get the airmen thinking about risk management and, and what, what kind of scenarios are you going to, is it worth taking your aircraft, airplane and air crews into? And where should you be able to hold, prudently hold back? And so it all comes together, though, in, in opportunities and needed to actually do that. And that kind of gets back to the point I made before. They need scenarios to practice in because we all know you're going to, they always say, you know, let's, you know, train like you fight. Well, you're going to fight like you've been training. And that's our, that's our number one issue for our service. How does a commander do that, get that message across, communicate with the ranks in a way that is neither too hot nor too cold, that fires them up and gets them to do the appropriate thing, but doesn't get the message lost in the atmospherics around it? Well, for me personally, and this is very hard to do with a big organization because you can't address everybody all the time, but it really takes a lot of concerted face-to-face talking to airmen in the auditoriums, in their battle spaces, and explaining what it is you need them to do. And it, it's doable. Now, remember, General Minahan has a lot of great commanders under him, and they can carry forward the message. But what the good news is, he set the stand. He said, hey, this is the imperative. This is a, no, a date to think about. You know, he hopes it doesn't happen. I, you know, I hope it doesn't happen either. But at least he, give, he galvanizes the command and the leaders below his level go out and say the word. And now when he can do his battlefield circulation, when he goes around and talks to those bases, he got to, he has to, he will communicate it to them directly and explain to airmen exactly what we've been talking about on this podcast. It's like, guys, what our vision of, a, of the previous war, of what war is, if you take Af- Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, maybe your previous deployments, and you think that's what it's going to be like, you're wrong. It's going to be a lot different. You're going to be attacked at your base and you're going to need to fight through that and generate air power and that message i think is best communicated in person from the commander right into the airman's ears so they can see it and feel it and it takes a lot of battlefield circulation and it takes other commanders underneath you to do it but really that's the way to generate a cultural shift you know both jj and i and and certainly you as an active participant have been covering this and in in sort of getting where the message sometimes gets gets lost and you know it, it takes away from the importance of what's trying to be achieved and and i think anybody who was at afa 
uh, last year, certainly heard uh, General Minahan talk in no uncertain terms about the nature of the threat. And indeed, we heard from the Secretary of the Air Force who started off by saying, you know, I've got three words for you, China, China, China. Uh, and, uh, you know, certainly uh, under uh, underscoring that. Let me, um, or I should say, actually, that was in 21. Uh, that was in 21. But but yep. still, uh, General Minahan was, was backing that up as well. I, w- I want to take you to the idea of swarming drones, right? So there were some folks who sort of rolled their eyes at this and uh, you, you know, said like, wow, you know, tankers being involved in this. But indeed, we've been thinking about tankers, smart, you know, John Jumper and Jim Roach were talking about the smart tanker, you know, in, in 2003, 2002 uh, timeframe. And one of the things that I remember Secretary Kendall saying when he was the undersecretary for acquisition was, look, swarming is great, but the problem is getting swarming to where you need to, because if they're swarming, they're relatively small and short ranged, and I need those in the Western Pacific. How do we need to think differently about the application of air power at range and the role that tankers, transports, you know, bombers as ISR, right? How do we need to think about a very different architecture? And then again, the role of stealth tankers, the, uh, the role of swarming uh, capability coming off of I- aircraft, right? How do we have to think about that as opposed to thinking of things as bombers, fighters, right? In, in sort of cylinders and, and what they do. These are, these are great questions, and I can't say I have the answers to, to all of them, but I, I do agree that distances, you know, they, it, the Pacific is the, it's the theater where there's the tyranny of distance, and, um, and it's, it's an issue for our classical fighters and bombers, and therefore there's tremendous demands on the tankers, but it'll even be a bigger issue if you take any kind of lower-end, you know, high-numbered drones or swarms or whatever you can come up with. So I think the big, the answer here, we, we, we can't sit here and say, this is the answer. But what we, what we really need to do is engage with industry about what's possible. You know, could, could a, uh, a JASM type missile carry these, a swarm of things into an area and then they are launched, right? And then it, it gets the most of the way and then they finish out the job where it may be to overwhelm an enemy's radar or confuse an enemy while there's another higher end kinetic attack happening somewhere else. It really, the question is what is possible? And that's why it's in exper- experimentation. It's working with industry. Should, you know, and, and it's not a bad idea. Could you get more use out of the tankers in terms of them doing something, could they be that mothership? Could you put things on there that allow them to truly engage in the fight in more than a supporting role? Um, there's one thing to remember though about tankers. Tankers are airplanes that are not necessarily combatants and allows them to land anywhere in the world. As soon as you start putting things on there that are weapons, that may change the political calculus and whether or not you're allowed to bring them in there or not. And that's just something we always have to have in our cross check. We talk about weaponizing tankers. Does that also apply to transports? Uh, same thing. I mean, tra- right. now a transport, uh, a transport is generally, you know, with the exception you stated up front, where you roll the really big bomb off the back of one of them. That's an exception. But if you were if you were going to weaponize our transport aircraft, and they are weapons carrying platforms, then that's something at least where you're going to be allowed to land and fly out of. Now. The good thing about tankers and transport aircraft is they can fly a long way. So they can accept more distant basing and still be effective if if, if the, the environment is permissible for them to fly into. And so, but it's just something to have in the car on any airplane. If it can kill people, 
then countries, other countries are going to be like, are we sure we want this to land here? Because if we do, this means are we opening ourselves up for attack? Right. And that's just something we have to think about as we as we as we craft the force mix of the future. That's fascinating, particularly given, uh, as we mentioned, the Air Force put out the RFI for KCZ, a stealthy tanker, which is, if you look at something like a large blended wing body tanker, there's no question but that this is a military aircraft with a large number of capabilities. As we get more advanced in the technology, does that reduce the number of places that we can base out of diplomatically? Well, I think I think it won't be the necessary a, a very advanced um, low, lower observable platform that's a tanker should still allow us to base anywhere. It's just a question you have to assure the country what's the purpose of what you're doing with the aircraft, right? And um, and and that's just something that will vary from country to country. I do think there is merit, a great deal of merit, in creating tankers that are not as vulnerable as what we have classically whether they're manned or unmanned, that can go in there and, and like you said, help that tyranny of distance with the, where there's just, there wouldn't be a way to get guys in without that kind of thing. I think that's, I think that's a, a very key point. Now, you know, it's, the difference between a good Air Force and a great Air Force is air refueling. And I, I say that as a fighter pilot, because <laughs> what, those, what those guys can do, what, what they do is they enable flexibility. They enable air power to shift, move on the fly, stay longer, make big decisions that they wouldn't have made had they not been out there. So they're an imperative to any fight. And so if you can create ones that are more survivable and can get closer in, I think that's key. It's another question is how do you want to arm them? Do you want them to have do missions that are more and more offensive in nature? And that's just an interesting debate that we have to have. Uh, there are so many more uh, questions uh, that we uh, like to ask, but it is, I think, important to ask you uh, about what happened uh, in Iran. Obviously, that was a, something that would keep you uh, awake at night uh, when you were absent, uh, and indeed uh, keeps people awake at night all the time. Israel has been waging a pretty sophisticated campaign to slow uh, Iran's nuclear program. Indeed, the United States has uh, as well. Um, we heard from Sam Bendet, as as JJ mentioned earlier uh, in the show, where Sam, who is one of the world's leading experts on unmanned systems, said the Iranians had erected effectively cages, a little bit like slat armor, uh, on key buildings to make sure that this to blunt these sorts of attacks. What what is you know as a as a, a veteran airman, what do you see in how capabilities are are being used? Uh, and how there could be actually some pretty simple defenses to some pretty, you know, the Israelis had to go through some trouble to get a quadcopter all the way over there in order to be able to do this, right? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think what we're seeing, what, uh, for starters, I don't have any idea who did this. I'm not involved in that stuff anymore, but I can tell you this, they got a Iran got a taste of their own medicine because they and their proxies have been doing this kind of stuff for a while now. And guess what? They're vulnerable too. And uh, I think the whole drone and the low-end air platforms, that, let's just call it that, whether it be a low-end drone that can fly a thousand kilometers with a small payload or a quadcopter or something in between, that is a huge area that we have a capability leap in the platform themselves. And we have a significant deficit in the affordable defenses for those. And, and now as 
when things start blowing up, that's when people get serious. I've been concerned about this since my time in the Middle East, because I could see these things. They'd be striking some of our allies, and they're very difficult to detect and very difficult to defend against. And I should say difficult to defend against affordably, right? And so when all of those factor together, it shows to me an urgent need for industry and technologists to get out there and look at affordable ways to defend against them. That's the lesson I'm learning as a, as a U.S. guy, as a commander, former commander, and as a summon an advocate for air power. Affordability is a really interesting word, particularly as we try to advance technology in some forms of aviation that aren't used to having high technology applied. The Air Force's traditional strategy in moving forward, at least for the last decade or so, has been to divest, to invest, to reduce the number of aircraft in order to be able to have money for higher end aircraft. How far can that go before quantity stops being effective? I can tell you with, with a great deal of confidence, it's already gone too far for the United States Air Force. It's gone way too far. It's gone too far in fighters. It's gone too far in bombers. And it's gone too far in, in, in many other uh, areas within the Air Force. And the reason why is, is because that, that was a reasonable thing to do coming out of the Cold War. But nowadays, the, it, there could, an F-22 can only be in one place in the world at one time. Right. It, it, even though it's incredibly effective, it's only in one place at one time. But what we've seen, there's been no interest in us as Americans dialing down our ambitions around this world, our ambitions to, you know, to, def- for, to defeat violent extremists, our ambitions to counter aggression, support, stay allied with NATO, to face the Chinese threat. So unless someone dials down our level of ambition, we have to have sufficient capacity that's numbers to go after these, this global requirements. And, and so far, there's been no relief on global demand. So what happens is you can only get so small and then you're gonna uncover missions, okay? And so just like you know, when you guys think about it, think about the increase, the, the, the billions of dollars we threw at the very land-centric missions of the last 20 years. We did it because we were embroiled in a land-centric war. We neglected air power. For 20 years. And now we see, oh my goodness, look at we have this Chinese threat. We have this Russian aggression. The world is, and by the way, the Middle East isn't getting any calmer. We have this demand on air power, not only for the volume of air power, the capacity, but also it needs to be capable, the high end. And then when you both of those together, the divest to invest strategy is over. It's failed. You cannot do that anymore. We have to put the money in the air power that we're going to need for this country and our allies. So apart from giving thoughtful answers on podcasts, how effective are the airmen being in making that case for United States air power? Well, obviously not effective enough. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's, it's the air, air power has been taken for granted by decision makers in America for years because we kicked some butt out there and we do a phenomenal job of protecting our forces on the ground. It's incredible the precision we've employed employed air power for decades now, but that's the kind of war folks are used to. And that's not gonna be the fight for the future. We've been saying it, we've been yelling it from the the mountaintops, but I, I worry that it's gonna take a catastrophe, an embarrassment, before we really realize that we, we're not where we should be. We're not investing the way we could. And so yes, airmen have been saying this for a while, 
that has been falling on deaf ears. Hopefully this will help change it. Um, I, I, I'm uh, reminded uh, of uh, Buzz Mosley, right? Buzz traded people, yes. equipment uh, in the hopes to get investment for the future and lost the people, lost the equipment and, and, and lost uh, the, the future funding uh, as well, uh, ultimately. Uh, so we do yeah. un- unfortunately see how this drama plays out, right? You know, you know can I say something about that really quick? Uh, sure. We all know General Mosley uh, was, you know, moved on as the chief, former chief of staff, because if you remember one of the things he did, he, during the height of those campaigns, those ground center campaigns, he was one individual in the Pentagon that was thinking about the future. The future. That's the future that we have right now. He was thinking about it back then. And he got in trouble for thinking about it and talking about it. And, and, and looking back, he was right. And so my point now is that now that we realize that, that we are behind, now it's time for our leadership to get after it and resource exactly the things he was talking about. You know, I mean, it was, uh, I remember Mike Wynn would very eloquently say, my, my brother uh, was shot down in his F-4, not because he was fighting the Soviet Air Force, but was fighting the best capability the Soviet Air Force could make available to the Vietnamese. And they were both fighting for F-22s and more of them, uh, as well as other capabilities to prepare for a high-end fight. So I would agree with you that they would make that case. Um, I want to bring you to one last uh, question and maybe bring the conversation around to the top, sir. You know, in Ukraine, the United States has been doing the right thing, but doing it too slowly, right? We, we said we wouldn't send stingers or javelins. We ended up doing it. No artillery. We're now sending rocket artillery. We were delaying intelligence. Now we're giving full intelligence. We said no armored vehicles uh, or tanks. We're now delivering armored vehicles and tanks. And indeed, our allies and partners are really putting pressure for us to send combat aviation. Uh, there. Indeed, Dave Deptula was one of the voices nearly a year ago saying, hey, let's clear F-16s, get these guys into Nellis, get them trained up, and in which case they would have been able to accept those uh, complex weapon systems down and, and maintain them. Each one of these things have been sort of responsive as opposed to proactive. What's the big lesson we should be learning about being more proactive uh, ultimately? I mean, obviously, you know, we don't want to precipitate a nuclear war, but some of it is performance theater on the part of the Russians. How do, how do we need to think about this and learn the right lessons if we're going to continue deterring the Chinese and being ready for, for that kind of adversary? Uh, now, these are, these. you know, didn't Winston Churchill once say America always does the right thing after exhausting every other possibility? But, you know, we, what, you're exactly right. Uh, when I was in the, well, when I was in the Pentagon, uh, what was off limits today suddenly becomes uh, acceptable the next day in terms of what we would give them. And we've we've seen that with weapon system after weapon system. I think we absolutely have to think ahead. The Ukrainians are, they are not going to cave on this. And the Russians uh, with Putin in charge, th- this could be a protracted war for quite some time. So I think we should put ourselves in the shoes of the Ukrainians and study and learn from this and figure out what things are going to be a cost-imposing strategy on Russia. And, and then identify that technology, think about it, think through the politics of it, and then push that stuff over to them. Because if we can impose the cost, through the Ukrainians, impose the cost to get Putin out of there or to, to the peace state, whatever it is, I think that's key. So we, we can't just wait for the ask. We have to think ahead. What if we were the one? What if this was our fight? What would we do? You know, and I agree with you 100%. We don't want to give Ukraine something that's going to drive 
an embarrassment or a threat to Russia to where it turns into nuclear escalation. But be advised, Putin's going to he's going to threaten that no matter what. He'll play that card all day. So we have to thread the needle here. But I think we need to think about the technology right now that will impose cost on Russia. And, and those same technologies, by the way, will be effective against the Chinese campaign, depending on, on what we're talking about. I think we could put a lot more into this and in thinking ahead than we have so far. General Guastella, thank you so much for a thoughtful discussion and, frankly, giving us a lot more than we could fit into a half-hour program to think about, to talk about, and we hope we can have you back. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, and I'd love to be back. A absolute pleasure, sir. Thanks so much for joining us as well. And to our audience, thanks so much for joining us, and special thanks to GE Aerospace for their generous sponsorship. We'll be back in the air and on the air next week.